0: Evolution,
1: communication, cognition, conservation, behavior, primatology, Primatology. Primatology. typically primates, become the monkey. No, you're in the right place. This is the Talking Apes podcast. That was the intro theme to the primate cast, one of my absolute favorite podcasts and one the team here listens to religiously. Primate Cast was created by my next guest, primatologist Andrew McIntosh. From across the Pacific Ocean, Andrew joined me from his home just outside of Kyoto, Japan, at Kyoto University's Wildlife Research Center. We worked out all the time zones, including skipping across an international dateline, to have him on and talk about his own research as a behavioral ecologist, and his focus on the hidden world of primate parasitism. Beyond parasitism, we also talked about his experience as a primate podcast host, and helping communicate the complex and critical world in which primatology scientists work. I also had a chance to dig into Andrew's own long and winding road to become a primatologist. As you might imagine, no two primatologists wander the same path, and serendipity often plays a surprising hand especially for a kid from the very non-tropical prairies of Manitoba, Canada. Hi, I'm your host, Jerry Ellis, and welcome and thanks for joining me on Talking Apes. You're listening to the podcast that gets to the heart of what's happening with and to apes like us. Talking Apes is made possible through the generous support of listeners like you and through our growing Patreon members program. For as little as $3 a month, we invite you to join those who have already committed to making this podcast a success. To support Talking Apes, start by visiting our website at TalkingApes.org. There you can choose from donate or become a monthly Patreon member. And now, I'm delighted to welcome fellow podcast hosting hominid, Andrew McIntosh. Hi, Andrew, and... I'm trying to, if I should say good morning or good evening or whatever's going on, you're on one side of the Pacific and I'm on the other side of the Pacific. And, and yeah, it's like one in the morning for me.
0: <laughs> it's like,
1: I don't know, five in the afternoon if we should both be having a beer or something right about now. But uh, anyway, welcome to Talking Apes.
0: We can just say konnichiwa.
1: <laughs> konnichiwa. There we go. Yeah, it's, it's such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you very much. We came to know each other through our podcasts. Um, You run a podcast out of Kyoto University called primate cast and you knew us for uh talking apes and we knew you for that and then we thought well we should talk to each other but very much to my pleasure um i found out that your podcast is is really your sort of um your night job you know your your regular (laughs) day job is you're a primatologist how cool is that
0: (laughs) Uh, yeah and how unoriginal to have a Podcast called the Primate Cast from primatologists. <laughs> well,
1: maybe unoriginal, but in some ways very original since you started back in 2012. So, mm-hmm. I, which which I was really surprised. I didn't realize that it had been running that long. So, I'd like to start with you, the primatologist, and I wanted to dig into your career a little bit because. You epitomize to me um this this theory I have is sort of serendipity or i I call the tumbleweed theory, which is you know we we often are like tumbleweeds and and we become over the years all the things we kind of collect as we tumble along and and you really do epitomize that i mean you're you're a kid from you know the the plains of Canada and um wanting to be a marine biologist and now you're living in Japan. And a primatologist, so connect those dots for me.
0: Yeah, there's probably a lot to unpack there. Um, I I don't disagree with that general assessment of how I've come to 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 be at the moment. Um, so I, I've written about that story before. Uh, so I do come from the, plain, the the prairies of Canada. I'm born in Winnipeg, and but I probably just had like a kind of typical uh, childhood for anybody who's really interested in animals and nature, right? I was kind of a shy kid who was. Pretty content to be in the corner with my, you know, plastic barnyard or jungle animals or something playing around, and uh, eventually that just, you know, led into this this kind of interest in uh, in nature and biodiversity and, and studying animal behavior. But uh, I had gone originally to the University of Manitoba with the idea that I would switch to marine biology. Um, at the University of Guelph was the original plan, um, but then in the very first year, kind of interesting. The very first year of my undergrad studies, we had a professor strike, and so that's the kind of thing that's been happening in the UK recently, but uh, you know, over similar issues, I suppose. But at the time, the university gave us this option to, uh, you know, either stick in your classes and maybe you'll get lectured to, maybe you won't, or you can get a full refund for withdrawing from the program. And I was, frankly speaking, not doing very well in a lot of the classes that would have, you know, uh, justified my becoming a marine biologist later on. But the one interesting thing was I had one class that was called human origins in antiquity. And it was given by like a really kind of, um, old school white haired lecturer with a very dry and slow voice, but I was just drawn to the material so much. So I became so interested in this idea of human evolution and, uh, you know, our, our process, um, through the primate lineage. And so that, that was kind of where I got really interested in that. But, uh, after that you know I just found any opportunity that I could to get out into the jungles basically, so you know someone from the middle of Canada is, doesn't they don't you don't necessarily situate them so easily in the middle of the jungles um but that's where I ended up. I found a really great primatology program at the University of Calgary and uh you know we had some this actually it when I look there's that you know cliche maybe now I don't remember whose quote it was, but you know you you can only uh um understand your life backwards basically by looking back but you have to live it you know in, in, in forward or, or forwards um but looking back i can see a lot of foreshadowing which would have ended you know not clearly pointed me in the direction of japan but you know when i was uh, uh, maybe four or five years old i have a picture of myself in a gray tuxedo getting ready for my uncle's wedding and in one of my pockets i've got the character quick kick in the gi joe action figure series. And uh, I just Googled that for this podcast and it turns out that he, he, he's somebody called uh, MacArthur S. Ito. So it had a Japanese <laughs> father. It was the character. So anyways, you know, I was interested in in a, a bit of Japanese culture at the time. But then at the University of Calgary, uh, a few of my professors also had relationships to primatologists in Japan and they had studied the Japanese macaques of Arashiyama. Arashiyama is a, a, a place just outside of Kyoto where have a really famous uh, monkey park where Japanese scientists have been studying Japanese macaques for a really long time, uh, since like the 60s basically. And it's also a tourist park where people come and see the provisioned monkeys. But part, I think it was in the 70s, that group fissioned and part of it ended up in Texas in a place called Dili in Texas. And so you had this Arashiyama East and West. And so some of my professors had studied those Arashiyama West monkeys. Um, and so they had relationships to Japan and they would teach uh, courses on like, history of primatology, for example. And, um, you know, in those kind of courses, I learned about how um, science itself the, or the, the evolution or development of a scientific field depends so much on, you know, the the, the backgrounds of the, the players that are involved. And so there was this idea of East versus West primatology, looking at the, you know, the different ways that people had done science um, so I was really exposed to that from an early age, uh, as an undergraduate student. And again, that's a bit of foreshadowing for me ending up in Japan. But the thing that I think is most interesting for me is when you are a scientist, assuming that you you know you're you're open to collecting these different kinds of um, studies and uh, relationships with other scientists in or around your field. Um, so many cool things can happen. So. You know, after my Ph.D. in Japan, I was traveling a bit in Europe, uh, giving presentations of my Ph.D. work, and I happened to visit the lab. There's the the CNRS, so the French National uh, Center for Scientific Research uh, in Strasbourg. I was giving a presentation there to some of my friends and colleagues, and it just so happened that there were these seabird folks there were attending the talk as well. And and when I finished the talk, you know, a couple of them grabbed me and said, come to my office. We we got this really good idea. You're studying the wrong species. Primates are not the right model for you. You need to study our penguins. Come with us to Antarctica. And basically that that kind of, you know, led down this other pathway. But uh, I I just think that's the really fun part about being a scientist. Um, And, you know, now with connections like this, with you and Talking Apes, You know, the more you get out there, the more opportunities you have to kind of (laughs) become a little more distributed in the world. And I think that's a fun thing.
1: It is a very fun thing. I mean, it's like as a filmmaker, one of the things that I've always told, you know, when I've lectured or talked to groups or stuff, I just sometimes you just have to put yourself in the place. You know, it's like you have to trust your gut and, you know, obviously you got to be trust your skill set and all of those things. But you've good things happen. You just got to be there. And it's hard to communicate that. It was certainly hard to communicate that to powers who are paying you because they they want a little more security than just, oh, yeah, if I'm there, it'll happen. You know, but Mm -hmm. but it's the truth. It it does. It's like, you know, that's why I love your your penguin stories, because here you are wanting to study marine biology, which, by the way, is where I started. Uh, I was going to do coral reef ecology. Um, that was my, my goal and, uh, got, Waylaid and ended up with cameras in my hand, and the next thing I know, I was spending the next ten years starving to death and trying to make <laughs> a living. And but uh, anyway, another story. But but it's I I laughed when I read your bio about you know wanting to be a, a marine biologist. I at least you know grew up in the Seattle area, so I was closer to some salt water than right. you were in out, in out in the prairies of Canada.
0: You know, I did, when I was, a, I think I would have been 16 in high school, um, and I just had my mom was visiting in Japan, and she re-told this story. Uh, I, I didn't realize it almost caused like a, a huge meltdown of my parents' relationship, but when I, when I was about 16, I really wanted, it was connected to this marine biology thing, but I really wanted to get my divers certification, And but of course, I was locked in high school in the middle of Canada, and so it just wasn't a common thing. I mean, I, I told some of my friends, they just look at me with blank stares <laughs> when you're talking about How is that even a thing here? And, but you know, my, my mom convinced my dad it'd be okay. It was really expensive to take lessons, but I went to a place and, you know, I did all of my earlier dives in pools just around the city. And then the open water certification happened at a place called uh, West Hawk Lake. So in the kind of Northwestern Ontario, Canadian shield area, I mean, beautiful landscapes. Um, But you you don't think of it as a place to go diving. But that's exactly where I did my open water diving. So I was, you know, down there trying not to uh, uh, to freak out amidst, you know, the sunken gas station stands and snowmobiles (laughs) and things like that. (laughs) A few northern pipes drifting by here and there. But it was it was enough for me. I was really happy.
1: Yeah, no, it's, I can't even imagine diving into those lakes. <laughs> anyway, so you end up in Japan and we'll get to the podcast in, in a little bit because like I said, that's not really your day job. And what I'm really fascinated by as you talk about in your bios, you really work in behavioral ecology and this but especially this intersection between species and parasitism. And why is that important? I mean, what, what is, we've had guests on here who talk about, you know, diseases, zoonotic diseases, and and I think we all are aware to some degree of the impact of that because of COVID. But parasitism, I think, is a little bit different pathway that people don't quite understand so maybe enlighten us.
0: Yeah. So I'm going to, I'll try and go back to the beginning. Um, so you're right. I mean, and, and you've done a great spotlight on the, the problems of infectious disease. And, you know, we heard great interviews from people like, uh, David Kwame and, and some of my colleagues too, Tony Goldberg, I always like listening to. And then we had, you know, you had, uh, Gladys kalamazik on there, um, who we also recently, um, heard from as well. But, uh, Normally, when people, and COVID is a great example, and now bird flu, normally when people think about the importance of studying wildlife from the perspective of infectious disease, you're really looking at these, uh, you know, really potentially impactful zoonotic, uh, they're they're often viruses, potentially bacteria, anthrax could be an example of that in some parts of Africa. But um, so those are the ones that, that I think tick... Or you know, red red flag everybody. So we know that they have a, the potential, um, you know, to cause not not just among wildlife where they can be really devastating and cause massive population declines, but also in human populations when they cross the species bo- uh, boundary. But uh, you know, viruses, bacteria, they are part of a broader context of you know this evolutionary relationship between species that we call parasitism. And normally people don't think of viruses and bacteria as parasites. They are uh, in, in one sense. Um, but there are also other kinds of parasites that we're constantly dealing with. And, you know, humans are not exceptional um, in, in, in not suffering from various degrees of parasitism around the world. Parasites like uh, intestinal worms, for example, can have huge influences on, you know, economic development, on health, on, uh, you know, even people's cognitive development, you know, in, part, in, in parts of the world where uh, you have endemic intestinal worms that we haven't, you know, solved through hygiene or, you know, development or, um, you know, there's some eradication programs for Guinea worm is one example. I think a former president uh, Carter was involved in that um, as well. And we're getting closer, but, but these kinds of parasites are also really insidious. And one of the things that makes them challenging to deal with is they they've just been around forever, In our population so humans have had to deal with things like intestinal worms and you know on the outside of our skin as well we have things like fleas and mites and ticks and things like that that we deal with as well Uh, but that's just as true for wildlife and so what really got me interested in this uh in studying the interaction between animals and their parasites is just the the really long evolutionary history that they have with them and we often think of these as co-evolutionary relationships where you know maybe you have Cases where there are arms races, you know, where a parasite's trying to get a leg up to be able to infect a host better. And then the host is evolving new defenses to try and escape that parasite. And so you have this really interesting kind of ratcheting effect that, that can happen. Um, uh, but also, you know, many parasites evolve to cause less harm to their hosts. But the question is then, are they really inconsequential for how those animals are doing? And What happens when humans disturb those kind of ecological balances that we see in nature? So maybe it's that a healthy community can support a huge diversity of parasites. Um, But when you start having, you know, population declines, if we take primates, you know, most primates live in, uh, well, they can live in really diverse primate communities. You know, I work in, one of the field sites that I work at is uh, along the Kinabatangan River in um, Northern Borneo in Malaysian Borneo, and if you just float on a boat down the river, you'd be amazed at how much biodiversity you see. It's a really incredible place on this planet. Um, but part of that is because you know just along the riversides is where you have a lot of the intact forests, and then just on the other side of that is just oil palm ex- expanded oil palm, and oftentimes you see those oil palm fronds like lapping up the sides of the river. Uh, so that's that's a kind of devastating side part of that, but you know, in healthy ecosystems of primates, you may have, you know, really diverse community of primates and a really diverse community of parasites that they have. Um, but what happens when we start to affect the balance there? And that's something that we've become really interested in because we assume that, uh, and, and maybe this is something we can get into a bit later, but, um, we, my research has mostly been focusing on intestinal worms. That's where I have the most interest. Um, uh, And so it's a little bit hard to study intestinal worms and primates because we don't go around destructively sampling them all the time, right? It's not like the olden days when we'd shoot a a monkey in the tree and then check out what's inside of it. Um, So we have to use what we call non-invasive sampling. And we collect a lot of primate feces as much as we can find. Uh, And then we use that to kind of make inferences about what kind of parasites are in the community. Um, But because of that, it makes it's really hard to estimate the size of the problem and estimate the, the kind of impacts that those parasites will have. So that's something that my research team has been doing in Japan. We have a nice model system here where we have Japanese macaques and the, in Japan there it's one of the rare cases where you have a single primate community, right? It, uh, apart from humans, there're no other non-human primates in Japan. So it it makes that story a little bit simpler so we can, you know, look at very simplistic relationships between Uh, those animals and their intestinal parasites but then you go to a place like borneo where suddenly you have up to 10 different primates many of them iconic you know we have the orangutans there we have the proboscis monkeys um gibbons bornean gibbons so it's a it's a really incredible place Uh, but the question becomes then how much influence does each species in that community have on each other you know not just in terms of what kind of food they're maybe competing over but also what kind of parasites they might be sharing with each other you know and one thing we've become very interested in is let's take a species like a long-tailed macaque. Maybe some of your listeners will be familiar. It's a very commonly uh, observed primate species throughout kind of Southeast Asia, and they're also used in biomedical settings. Uh, they call them where they call them cynomolgus macaques. Um, but that is an animal that you maybe many people find as a pest. It's a It's a weedy species, meaning that it it does really well around uh, human settlements, um, places with livestock. There are a lot of places where where people get into really cl- close contact with them, even at tourist sites throughout Southeast Asia. Uh, but the thing about that is, because of that, they can be really great bridges for infectious diseases that might end up moving from those human communities or areas of you know agriculture and livestock, uh, intensive farming into the parts of the forest where the other primates live and so these are the kinds of questions that we're really interested in solving is is what happens as humans kind of continue to disturb those natural ecosystems to the communities that are already in place and i think with covid it's a very pointed example because you know our best estimates are that it comes from this wet market in Wuhan. so and and we know it's probably you know potentially has moved between different uh Uh, components of the animal community there from bats to animals like civets more recently raccoon dogs which are iconic in japan as well as tanuki um so you know when we we alter those kind of communities it leads to all kinds of possibilities for mixing and and spillover so um that's really what we're kind of interested in And, and, and we do it you know starting from the bare bones basics of basic science looking at the relationships between japanese macaques and their worms um right up to these you know really Uh, important ecosystems and and potential locations for, for, uh, you know, really horrible things to happen like in Borneo.
1: That's why I was so fascinated when I read that you were doing this project on the Kennebatongan. I've been there a few times. In fact, it was, it was one of the very first places that I visited when I went to see orangutans. So when I, I read that in your bio that you were working on that, my interest was in that stress It's something that doesn't seem to be talked about a lot. Um, And and maybe it is amongst primatologists and, you know, scientists, but it doesn't make it into sort of lay conversation or lay science um, communication is stress and what stress does. I mean, people, I think people think, you know, you cut a forest and those species, well, there's a bunch of forest over there. P- those animals will just move over there. Well, there already are species there. There may be the same species or maybe other species they come in conflict with um, and all of that. And so that creates a stress level that and we all know that once you know a system is put into stress, there's an opportunity there. And that, that's why I was interested in what you're doing and and that element of stress, because I think we're seeing global stress go on on all systems. So it's on a micro level, you could look at it in the Kennebatongan River region. But globally, with climate change and and it, things, we're starting to see this sort of larger stress. and i'm I'm just wondering what are we seeing something in 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 terms of disease and parasitism? Are we seeing something
0: globally? Mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's a really interesting question, and i I think the short answer to that is it's complicated. Um, and, I, and I can kind of explain for a couple of reasons why. So you're right. Generally, we have this idea. You know, if you think of the word stress, could be thought of in many different ways. Maybe you're thinking more like this ecosystem stress or pressure on an ecosystem. Um, you can also think of stress in terms of the physiological response that individuals have to those kind of situations. And we know that there are relationships between stress, physiological stress, and health uh, in many different dimensions. And parasitism is one. So it's true that you know. Um, Uh, for us and for for other wildlife, if if we have different stressors that are causing our our physiology to kind of get a bit unbalanced, then, um, you know, we can have immunosuppression, we can become more infected with different things, and that can have really negative health outcomes. Uh, But on another level, there's, I've always thought of this as something that's really interesting, because when we look at, let's say you're looking at a degraded habitat, if we stick with Borneo and the expansion of oil palm going into those forests, you know that oil palm, you know, it's kind of a mono plantation, so that there's not a whole lot of other things growing in those areas. Um, so you have this kind of deflo- uh, 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 decreased floral biodiversity, also a defaunation. There are not that many animal species that also kind of thrive in those environments. But the ones that do, um, in some sense, they can also be buffered by those situations. So there's some, going to be some species that actually do better, you know, whether it's at forest edges or in, you know, kind of. Um, anthropogenic landscapes. Uh, but the ones that don't, when, when you're thinking about organisms like parasites, what's really interesting is that they often have very, let's say, two, uh, life cycles that are very tuned to their hosts, especially the more specialized you get. So there may be you know, some intestinal worms, for example. Many of them uh, are transmitted through trophic interactions. So that means you know, when an animal eats an insect, it may become infected with this parasite. The parasite is eventually trying to infect that. It could be a primate host, uh, but it uses the insect as an intermediate host. Now, in order for that that parasite to kind of persist or survive in an ecosystem, it doesn't just require its primate host, it also requires its intermediate host. And so Because of that really kind of complicated life cycle, there are different pressure points on that parasite. You know, if you decrease the population of primates, then there's let's say less feces in the environment for those insects to be eating. If it's dung beetles, which means that eventually the dung beetle population may decrease, but the the parasites itself is also feeling a lot of pressure to be able to complete its life cycle. And so that's why I said at the beginning it's complicated because there are many situations where you you might imagine. Um, an animal to get very stressed by its situation, you know, its habitat is being degraded, there's people's uh, activities all around, maybe the population size is decreasing a lot. um, So stress levels could be up, but the same pressures could be facing those parasites. And so the relationship between stress and, you know, ecosystem change and parasitism is not so straightforward. And, you know, that's one of the things I've become really interested in A lot of researchers have been asking the question: Is what is the relationship between biodiversity and disease? And so, a really important concept is, you know, if you decrease biodiversity, should that mean that the remaining members of that community are more at risk of infection or less at risk of infection? And so, there's there's kind of two concepts that, that, and they could be operating at the same time, which makes it even more complicated. But there's something called the dilution effect. So, the more species you have in an, an ecosystem it could be primates let's say we have an ecosystem with 10 primates um the more uh, let, let me rephrase that the more primate species you have in an ecosystem the less each species is infected with a given parasite just because not all of them can be infected and so if you imagine how parasites are acquired in the environment you know if they're being acquired by a, a species that we would call an, uh, an incompetent host, it, it's just not gonna be infected by that parasite, then it acts as what we call an ecological sink, right? So that parasite just effectively becomes removed from the population because it becomes this destroyed when it enters that you know non-competent host. Um, so that's called the dilution effect. Maybe really diverse communities are good in that they keep the overall uh, pressure from infection from parasites low. But the other possibility is that you have an amplification effect, and maybe some hosts in the community are actually really good at collecting and spreading parasites, right? And so I, earlier I mentioned long-tailed macaques. You know, we don't have data to support this at the moment, but we expected, because they're so general in their behavior and so capable of occupying and thriving in human landscapes. We figure that maybe they can be a reservoir, or, or even just like a competent host for so many different parasites that they move around the community. That would make long tail macaques amplifying hosts. And so, you know, if the the community of primates was decreasing, uh, but you still had these amplifying hosts in the community, then you know the risk of infection could actually be uh, w- remain high. Um, or even if you maintain a high biodiversity of primates, if you have a lot of amplifying hosts then the risk to the whole community can be high. So it it is quite complicated. I think studies of that relationship vary quite a lot. I know Lyme disease has been looked at quite a lot in this because Lyme disease, you know, it's based on the transmission uh, of a parasitic organism through tick bites, uh, as many of us know. Um, And those ticks are, you know, potentially biting all kinds of different species in the forested woodlands that where they live. Uh, And so it's, it's possible that you know the more species you have the better able the parasite is to survive in that population or maybe some of those hosts like rodents are just especially good at you know uh, collecting and, and transmitting those parasites to ticks that cause Lyme disease so um like I said it's complicated it is complicated but I,
1: I think that's one of the roles of you know what, what we're trying to do with this podcast is like how do we how do we break that down and share that with people so they begin to understand it When we come back, I want to get Andrew's thoughts, both as a scientist and a podcast host, on something critical to both of us. How do we better communicate the need for all of us, not just fellow scientists, to understand science? And the fact that it isn't just a facet of our lives, but it is, in fact, the very fiber of our existence. That and other thoughts, after we join assistant producer Demelza Bon for a quick break. Hi, Demelza.
2: Hi, Hi, Jerry. Yeah, it's great to have you two talking about the need to communicate and inform the public about science. Science education is really critical to what we're doing across these two podcasts. And we've come to realise there's this really nice synergy between Talking Apes and the Primate cast. So, on the one hand, we try to approach topics from a very beginner's perspective to help people understand the importance of science in our everyday lives. The Primate cast does these incredible deep dives into the complex worlds of primatology and evolution and anthropology. So it's lovely collaborating with Andrew. Our entire team are obviously big fans of his podcast and I must say we were quite honored when we heard he was a fan of ours because he's really the primate podcasting OG with how long his show's been running. Now, I've been chatting with some of our listeners about our previous episode, and that is season two, episode 40 with Nicola. We talked about the different types of online primate abuse. Understandably, many of you were really shaken regarding this topic. And I must say, we've never had so many people write in at once to share your thoughts. We had so many that I can't read them all. So here are just a few. Anna said this all comes down to money which is why I think it takes social media platforms so long to shut these accounts down. I've reported and reported but nothing gets taken down. It's very frustrating. Our friends at OVaid who are an amazing orangutan protection charity said thank you this is a really important subject. This trend of horrific abuse has to be stopped. Arming people with the knowledge of how best to do that is invaluable. John Richardson said, please everyone share this podcast. Monkeys are being abused every day and made to suffer online for money. Thank you, Joan. That is good advice. Please do keep sharing it. And please do listen to the advice of Nicola and the SMACC in that episode. We know it's frustrating. Sometimes it takes a big accumulation of reports for something to get taken down. But every little helps. Many of you will know that just a couple of days ago, the BBC published a big investigation about this. So the world is finally waking up to these issues and we're going to keep fighting together all of us ludwig van jackson said thank you for striving to think of and present practical ways for this to be stopped your devotion and energy is a spark and griever said thank you for all the work that you do emma doherty said she really enjoys our podcast and jv Brun said great topics great voice great information did i mention this podcast is great thank you so much we absolutely adore you all to pieces. We can't do this without you and we love the support. So please keep the kind words coming in. It helps us to keep going. Quick reminders, we are a nonprofit. Podcasting is not free. As I mentioned earlier, science education is important to us. If it's important to you too, please head over to talkingapes.org and click donate or become a patron. You can make a small contribution and keep this podcast going forever. Write to us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter or talkingapes.org forward slash contact. And one more thing, please subscribe or follow in whatever app you're listening to. It really helps us grow. Please, everyone, of course, go and check out the Primate cast. Thank you to Andrew for your public support of our show. And I hope this lovely blossoming symbiotic relationship continues to grow. Back to Jerry and Andrew in the studio.
1: Thanks, Damalza. Andrew, I want to jump back into the science communication challenge that we both face. Tackling it, of course, in slightly different ways, but our podcasts have become a key communication vehicle. As an example, let's jump back to the disease issue for a moment i think getting folks to understand the complexity of that and the nuance of that of how disease works parasites work because there is an ecology there and i don't think we think about that in our everyday lives we think about you know we hear the word disease or parasite and it's a bad thing and it's like how do we you know kill this with an antibiotic how do we poison it how do we get rid of this thing right And so this understanding of how disease diseases work and and parasites work, it's not even a mystery. I think it's just it's um, bad science education.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, in general, in communication sense, people like simple answers, you know, black, white answers to things. And and my experience has been in this case. It's just not that it's very hard. Um, You know, I can give another example. There were from my own work. Um, in 2007, there was a paper published by uh, Charlie Nunn, Sonia Taiser and some colleagues, also American um, scientists, that found a relationship between a primate's threat status and the number of different um, parasites it actually hosted. And, and, you know, in nature, one host species, it's not like you're just dealing with one thing. You've got so many things on the go simultaneously. But what they found was that the primates that had were threatened in the IUCN red list of threatened primates, i uh, sorry, threatened species, I'm sorry. Um, the ones that were threatened actually had fewer parasite species. And this was based on a really nice database that they set up, which cataloged all of the uh, published host parasite associations. It's called the Global Mammal Primate uh, Global Mammal Parasite Database. Uh, so it's a great resource for anybody who's interested in these things. Uh, but based on that, they found this relationship, and so we're suggesting that uh, you know maybe um, there's some impact of decreasing populations on the kinds of parasite communities that can be supported. So a former graduate student, Liz Freas, and I uh, a number of years ago tried to replicate this with a, the the updated version of that database, and. What we were interested in though, is not just the relationship between a primate conservation status and infection, but also what specific organisms they were infected with and are they specialist parasites or generalist parasites? So this is really important. We can think of something like COVID you just mentioned has been found to infect all kinds of different animals. Um, So it's kind of a generalist in that sense. It it can get around a little bit easier and, and viruses sometimes can do that. Um, with their adaptive potential. But a lot of, uh, let's say intestinal parasites, for example, um, we have some great examples where they're very tightly linked to the host. So there's this really tight co co-evolution where, you know, one host has one version of that parasite and the next host has a version that, and they don't cross infect. So that happens with pinworms, for example. Maybe some of your listeners will have had an experience with pinworms. I did when I was about 11 years old, probably from playing in a sandbox somewhere in Canada. But uh, not pleasant, but those are not really dangerous infections on the whole. Um, people kind of get along okay. Uh, most animals get along okay with a pinworm infection, and most of them, frankly, have it in nature. So that's a very specialized host parasite association. And if you look at the phylogenetic tree, the pinworm phylogenetic tree matches the primate phylogenetic tree really closely. So it, it's one of these great kind of visual examples of, of host parasite coevolution. But what we found was that, not only did threatened primates have maybe smaller parasite communities, um, they also had a, a, a change in the proportion of specialist versus generalist parasites. So it seemed like the abundance of the specialist parasites in those threatened primates was lower. And this, the abundance of the um, generalist parasites was higher. Now you might be wondering okay but what does that mean? One possible implication of that is that those generalists are the ones that are much more likely to cause disease. You know, so if primates are are because of their threat status and decreasing populations, if they're actually losing their more specialized parasite fauna, it might open up more space inside for those generalist parasites to move in, right? There's this constant competition for space, not just among free-living animals, but also among parasites like intestinal worms. And so the danger there is then that you might have more generalist parasites that ultimately have, you know, higher potential impacts um, or larger potential negative impacts on their hosts. So this is something that we we think is really important and should be monitored. But it it just perfectly attests to that you know, if we don't take an ecosystem approach or understand the relationships between all of these species, then, um, you know, it becomes really hard to make predictions and know what's actually going to happen.
1: So when you're talking about a generalist, the parasite, mm-hmm. you're also talking about a parasite that could cross to other species mm-hmm. very potentially or, and humans, including yes. humans. So th- that's really interesting. Um, that variation between the generalists and the, the specialists, um, mm-hmm. Again, this goes back to that idea of, of looking at, and this is hard for, for any of us, I guess, but to look at us as ecosystems, not exactly human beings or not a gorilla or not a macaque, you know, but we're a mobile eco- ecosystem in, in which these parasites and diseases in some some associations are positive. I mean, there's, yeah. I mean, obviously our, our gut biome, human yeah. gut biome is there's a flora there that's really critical.
0: Yeah, yeah. And you know, some uh, some some scientists have decided to give that the mobile ecosystem a name, and they call it the holobiont. Um, I don't know if that's picked up in the kind of general population very often. But the holobiont. Holobiont. Huh. holobiont okay. in, any, in case anyone's interested. Yeah.
1: Okay, I'm, I'm gonna. I'm writing this down because I'm, <laughs> I'm, i w- <laughs>
0: um,
1: Because I want to check that out. But yeah, no, that's. Uh, be, Because I've thought about it quite a bit. I mean, being a person that's spent a a fair amount of time in the tropics, I've picked up my fair share of of parasites and other diseases and and realized that I'm a I'm a mobile biont or a holobiont. But um, but I think that's it becomes an even more significant issue when we start thinking about the the closed system that the planet is. And in especially now in, you know, in this, the stage of the Anthropocene where we have transportation, like we do Mm -hmm. um, where a parasite or a virus can Mm -hmm. pick up and move um, on a a jet airplane. And, you know, I mean, I can, I could jump on a plane and, and we we could be doing this podcast face to face Mm -hmm. and, you know, less than a day and in that same time i carry my entire parasite load with me um, to japan and share it exactly. with you and and anybody else around you and I, I don't know that we still have come to grips with that and thinking about that in in terms of disease. And so that's again, one of those, one of those things where I was fascinated by what you do in, as a behavioral ecologist, looking at this relationship um, between the two. Um, You said something a little bit ago, and I want to, make sure we we get to it and it's a little more focused on the on the podcast that you're doing but you talked about whether that was communicated into the general public and that's what we're trying to do with the, with the podcast that we're doing talk to me a little bit about what you're trying to do with your podcast and i also want to get into what a primatologist is because you've had a whole range of people on your podcast and we will have links to to Primate Cast and everything in in ours um, in our blog that accompanies this. But I want to talk about a little bit about what a a, a primatologist is because yeah. we we used your background as an example of if it's it's not just somebody who sits in the forest for thirty years staring at you know a a monkey or a, an ape and and never emerges from there and has no clue what the rest of the world is doing or looks like. Um, They're often very engaged in a lot of different things. And one of the things that I think is interesting about you is the idea of communicating science. It seems to be something you're very passionate about and how does that fit into your podcast and where does that fit into your life as a scientist and the, and the other things that you're doing is communicating science.
0: Yeah. Um, I think that's a really, really important point. And, uh, you know, (laughs) I I was thinking about getting ready for this interview, um, the the various reasons why I started the Primate cast back in 2012. So it's in the 11th year now. Um, One, you know, kind of embarrassingly, one of the reasons why I did it was because I thought it was a great opportunity to practice the kinds of conversations that should be really useful for, you know, your career. Um, When I started the primatologist, the primate cast, sorry, I I had just, uh, you know, I was about a year out from my PhD and I started it with a colleague and a a really good friend of mine, Chris Martin, who's now a a research scientist at the, uh, at Indianapolis Zoo. Um, And we're still great friends and we still talk a lot. Um, But we had this idea that, you know, you talk about how easy it is now to kind of get to different parts of the world within a day, or something like that. But many times, for us being in Japan, um, we can feel a bit isolated as well, uh, especially when you come from, let's say, you quote unquote, West. We come from North America. Um, we have a lot more kind of embeddedness in the North American culture or plus European culture. And Japan's a very different place. It's been wonderful, um, but we can sometimes get that feeling of isolation. And also, the background to primatology was so different in Japan, as I mentioned earlier. Um, you know, a lot of the ideas that you encounter here, and of course, the language is 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 very new. Uh, if
1: I can just interrupt for a second, sure. one of the you were um, speaking, I think it was to, with Franz Deval in one of your podcasts, and talking about the cultural difference in, in primatologists and their perspectives, West versus in Japan, and the receptiveness to ideas in Japan that wasn't there. Now maybe it that's changed um, since the early days when when Franz first started, um, but you know one of the things that's interesting about his work is, is the trajectory of of acceptance of some of those ideas, and yet he talked in your podcast about how he found a lot more acceptance yeah. in the Japanese community yeah, amongst that, primatologists.
0: Yeah, I, I loved uh, that. It's one of my favorite. Uh, conversations I've had on the primate cast is with Franz de and we were able to do a second a follow-up interview with him more recently but uh that's right and in that interview he he talks about how you know when he watched I think it was Yuki Maru Sugiyama who came to visit him in Holland uh, at the zoo he was working at and also w- was in the U.S. talking about you know recognizing all of these animals and how you know the response to that was "You can't recognize a hundred monkeys or something so th- there was a very different perspective on primatology throughout its history here, and now I think you know with just you know massive scale communication there there's not so much distinction anymore uh, i would I would say, um but we do have different roots and so when I arrived here that I was all for that as I mentioned in my my you know my undergrad and master's degree in calgary we were exposed to the way primatology was done in Japan, and I was really excited about coming here. Um, but we, we did still have that, that feeling a, a little bit of being isolated from what, where we came from. And so we, at the same time, recognized that the Primate Research Institute, where we were, we were students, um, and where I, I worked until it was recently restructured, is an incredible international hub for primatology. And so, you know, Franz Duval is just one example of it, but almost all of the guests in the first, you know, say five, six years of the primate cast were a direct result of all these amazing people coming to Kyoto University's Primate Research Institute. And, you know, we have to understand too, we don't, we're not based in Kyoto. So we're based in this really tiny, traditional historical town called Inuyama, which with a beautiful, I can look at it out my window here, but a beautiful old castle. It's one of the oldest remaining structures in Japan. Um, A beautiful river that runs through it, but, you know, very unlike uh, what most people's impression of Kyoto and Kyoto University are. But yet we had all of these, you know, uh, very um, influential and uh, wonderful primatologists who were coming here. Um, So we thought, man, we really need to uh, start taking advantage of this a little bit. And so we we. At, you know, at, around that time as well, um, the institute started we call it the Center for International Collaboration and Advanced Studies in Primatology. So this is our international graduate program. We bring people from all over the world. Um, you know we hold the uh, uh, entrance exams for them, we support them with administration. Uh, we run everything in English. We have a seminar on science communication as well, which is a big part of what we do, and we've been running that, you know for the last 11 years, um, weekly, for all of our graduate students. But we had this incredible setting. Um and at the time a bunch of money for internationalization. So Chris and I made a proposition to or a proposal to SciCasp and uh they agreed. And so we set up a podcast studio and away we went. Um so you know, some of the earliest interviews we did, Franz was one of our earliest, Jane Goodall was one of our earliest. Uh and so we just, you know, here were two two guys with no background in science communication at all. You know, unlike yourself, Jerry, obviously, who's been kind of in the aligned business for quite a while. Um we just thought it would be great. We we have the microphones now, we have this platform. So let's just archive all of these conversations that we can have. And you know, it's been really wonderful. And you know, in in thinking about that question of what a primatologist is, um, I think the the first answer to that is we are everything, you know. So primatology itself has a really interesting history, and it's one of those rare fields of science where we we kind of have like a start date. Uh, so there are people who, who have written, um, Donna Haraway is a, a, a historian, philosopher of science, had, had written a book called Primate Visions, which looks at, you know, the development of the field in, in various locations. Um, and we, through a very postmodernist lens, uh, which a lot of people like Francois don't appreciate. But uh, the point was that it, we have this, it's kind of encapsulated in time. And so we can look at it kind of from start to where it is now. And the origins of primatology are multifaceted. So you have uh, people coming in, in North America, it's typically from anthropology. People who are really interested in human origins and evolution um, end up studying primates. And we can learn a lot, you know, historically learning a lot about, you know, modeling early human societies based on what we see in our, you know, in in the earlier days, it was in baboons. Um, now it's more in great apes, especially chimpanzees and bonobos. But uh, you also had... Influence from psychologists, because comparative psychology, a lot of work with uh, primates in the lab, as an example, uh, and you had um, zoology as well. So people who are interested in biodiversity and animals in general and ecosystems and their behavior. You had ethologists. So really a whole bunch of different fields converging on primatology gives us this kind of rich flavor. And that was one of the really cool things about Kyoto University's Primate Research Institute, Um is that it was this incredibly multidisciplinary place where you have people studying behavior and ecology. You have people studying primate minds. Uh, you have people studying their communication. You have people studying their anatomy, their physiology, their evolution, uh, their relationships to other species. You have people studying like neuroscience and genetics and genomics, all in the same building, all with the opportunity to communicate with each other and focused on that that singular kind of base, which is we all study primates to varying degrees. And so I think in the primate cast, I've tried, although there are certainly some areas that I we've waded into a lot more than others, you, you'll find a lot more, you know, behavioral scientists and cognitive scientists on the primate cast than you'll find neuroscientists. And I think, you know, most of our listeners, uh, including in yours, uh, wouldn't, wouldn't uh, be surprised by that, I think. But, um, But uh, it's otherwise very eclectic, you know, and so that's been one of the most fun things about it is just being able to talk to people with very different backgrounds. Um, Primates themselves are super diverse, right? I mean, we have potentially over 500 species uh, to look at. So there's a lot out there that's known. There's a lot that's still left to be known. And uh, it's just fun to have those conversations with people.
1: and, And I think the thing that's also wonderful about especially the fact that you've been going as long as you have is many of those conversations are evergreen you know you can go back uh, to a conversation that you had 8 years ago and it's just as fascinating to listen to that conversation and and then of course over time one hopes as things evolve in the sciences and, and our understanding they give it, it it's nice to have those voices as a base to look back and go okay that's where we were and you know here's maybe how we we got to you know where we're going in all of that. And, and I really appreciate it since, I mean, we're only, you know, we'll be in a couple of months starting our third season. So we're just I feel like, you know, we're, st- we're still toddlers trying to figure out how to walk in the pod- podcast world. And you're like an old pro at, after 11 years. I mean,
0: well, with a I, I should say, though, with a fair number of gaps.
1: Was anybody listening 11 <laughs> years ago? I You know, we <laughs> didn't have good analytics
0: back then, so I can't tell you. But what I can tell you is that I'm not a huge fan of listening to my interviewing skills from 11 years ago. You know, we when we had um, Jane Goodall on the podcast, for example, Chris and I spent probably a day or two mapping out how we wanted that conversation to go. And, um, you know, we got there and, and the, Jane's host at the moment was uh, somebody called Tetsuro Matsuzawa, who one of he was a former director of our institute and um, a long term colleague and friend of Jane Goodall. And he was very adamant. You have 15 minutes with Jane. If you're not finished at 15 minutes, I will end the, <laughs> the conversation for you. So, <laughs> so but we had, you know, Jane Goodall comes in our tiny little studio uh, in in the institute, and you know she sits down and she's done this just a bazillion times already. By that point, it was you know only back in 2012, and here we are totally green and you know sweating probably profusely and not knowing what we're supposed to do. Uh, But she, she had her back. She, she just knew how to, how to proceed. And, you know, we asked our questions and um, it was wonderful. And, you know, it, I think for a young, one of the main reasons I I still to this day think a podcast, any podcast format is such a great endeavor is because of the opportunities it can provide um, not only listeners, but if you go back to some of our um, earlier primate casts you can see that i also like to try and involve young primatologists so i involve our graduate students when i can uh one of the we have a bit of an offshoot on the primate cast it's called conservation voices which was being done mostly by my former grad student postdoc cecile sarabian who is also wonderful she's much more of a conservationist and activist of mind than than i was um and so we complemented each other, I thought, really well, where she would do a various interviews, either, you know, out in the field at these conservation related conferences, especially I thought was excellent with these student uh, conferences in conservation science that she was attending, because then we get just these different voices that come in and a lot of them from young scholars with, you know, just a really vibrant and with all these new ideas and, uh, you know, who really want to go out and change the world. And now I just kind of sit back and interview this, the more science-y people and, and, and talk about the nuts and bolts of their research. Um, but it, it's just been really cool in that sense. I recently did an interview with a current graduate student, um, Kasia Majewski, and uh, we interviewed uh, Brianna Pobiner, who's a wonderful paleoanthropologist, but also an incredible science communicator in her own right. And so one of the things that we really wanted to get out from her was, you know, how, how does this work? What What is the process of becoming not only a scientist but also a wonderful science communicator? Um, more recently, Tesla Monson, which we released earlier this year, was another example of an anthropologist, paleoanthropologist, who's also a wonderful science communicator. And, you know, she, she was super inspirational too because she's been doing this um, Washington women program which is trying to highlight all of these historical fe- uh, female figures or women figures in from Washington state, and uh, you know just that has nothing to do with her own kind of line of research, right? And so one of the things I asked her was, how can we gain the confidence to do things that are kind of so outside of our sphere? Uh, I think as as specialized academics and I'm certainly guilty of this. I feel a little bit restricted in, you know, thinking that I can be not, not necessarily an authority, but have something to contribute on a topic that I'm not really uh, specialized in. You know, maybe that's like the scientist curse. We don't, you don't want to wade into those uncharted waters too much because you don't want to say something that you'll regret or you can't back up with evidence. But, you know, in her case, it was wonderful because she thought this is something that can really make a difference. you know, whether I'm a specialist in, you know, Washington history is irrelevant to the question of whether I can actually impact lives or raise awareness about these really important things. And so I've tried to take on a little bit of that persona as well with the Primate cast is, you know, and hopefully this, you know, we can expand a little bit more um, on that in the future. But I think it's a really great platform for all of these things. And so that's been a really, really fun, um, you know thing to do and also just to help with personal growth as you said it it takes
1: you have to you have to sort of put your fear aside and just venture into the water and and realize that you know somebody's got to do it and you're going to learn through the process just like this podcast i mean i i do the same thing i look back at some of those first first few podcasts. And, and we had a couple of amazing people. I mean, Brian Hare uh, at Duke yeah. University. I mean, you just turn Brian loose and he talks. You know? <laughs> so so it, it was, it was funny because it was Richard Wrangham who I wanted to get Richard on, who I've known for a long time. And Richard kept going, no, 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 you got to get my, my former students on. And he, you know, and he's like, if there was ever six degrees of separation, Richard is like two degrees of separation from I think everybody in the primate world. so um, it, it was great. He gave me a laundry list of people to talk to and and Brian was one of one of the first ones and 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 that really put me at ease at doing this and realizing yeah. that part of my job here is just to be a curious 12 year old and ask questions of amazing people like yourself um you know about parasites or whatever it happens to be. Um, I think the reason I I guess I appreciated some of the the guests that you had on and and the conversations that you had is, again, this idea that to have a populace who understands some of that science, I think, is really critical. And I think that's, you know, I I certainly think that's our obligation. And I see that as, you know, one of that's why I appreciate those conversations that you had with those people is, is science communicators. It's like, how do we how do we talk about what we're doing? engage people at where they are rather than assuming that they're going to migrate to where we are. I mean, there, you know, people don't know what goes on inside the walls at Kyoto university. It's, it's up to you to get that voice out.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that, that point about, you know, finding or reaching people where they are is the struggle for any communicator. Um, I, I, You know, one of my hats that I wear is uh, as a university lecturer as well at Kyoto University. And I, in the beginning, I didn't feel it, but I was fortunate to have inherited a class called zoo biology, which when I first started teaching it, maybe seven years ago, I really didn't have the background. I I hadn't really worked at zoos in the past. Um, I, of course, had an interest in them for various reasons. Uh, and, and it's kind of polarizing. People have different views on, you know, the the, the value of and the role of zoo in models of modern society. But one of the things that I became very aware and of and interested in was that is a, a perfect example of a place where you have basically every tier of individual knowledge coming in the gates. People who just really, what is an animal is the starting question that they're confronted with when they enter, uh, all the way up to you know what are the core risks threatening these species and what can I do? And I wanna use the zoo to learn about what my role can be. I know recently you put out a podcast, I don't remember his name, but the gentleman who was um, collecting cell phones, uh, used cell phones uh, and zoos would be one of the places where people can deposit them. So zoos have this potential to be really wonderful centers for conservation and awareness, but, historically and if you look at the academic literature on it they're just not that effective at educating the public and there have been tons of studies that have shown really mixed results on their educational value and of course it's very hard to track you know what people learn in a zoo long term um but this is something that i think you know podcasts have a a, who, who you're connecting to matters a lot in that sense but Every kind of center um, where information can potentially be disseminated has that set of challenges that it's faced with. And, uh, you know, your podcast, I think you do a great job of uh, uh, of being um, much more accessible. My podcast is much more focused on the nitty gritty of science. So I don't think, you know, most of our audience is just, you know, folks who happened upon it and are interested in animals, but they have a much more interest in, you know, the process and scientific process and things like that, but maybe more of an academic bent um, but maybe together, when we're out there, we can just keep expanding that net and uh, you know passing the ball to each other.
1: I'd like to think is the great synergies between our two podcasts, and and um, you know we're um, as we talked about a little bit before we got started um, recording today. I'm hoping that's some place that we can expand on um, and to make the podcast because I think these are incredible learning plat. It's an incredible learning platform um, to engage. To engage folks at, at a number of different levels, you know, not just sort of the casual listener who picks up, you know, Spotify or Apple and says, "Hey, I want to listen to something today," you know, but but really gets in and, and build you know, some curriculum, mm-hmm. even if it's, it's it's sort of casual curriculum around some of these podcasts and get that out into high schools and universities. And, exactly. And, you know, we, we've we discussed on a couple of occasions, and that's why I was excited to have you on, and, and this idea about what is a primatologist is there for a lot of young people there. You know, we, we talk to a lot of kids in what we do, and, and there's a, a ton of 12, 13, 14 year old, especially girls that are really keen to get into this field. Yes, but there's not a lot of sort of uh, public information out there about what it is. And I think that's another role that we can play in in this whole science communication piece is is giving people that information and but then taking that next step, how do you find those those epicenters in which you can put the information and then get it disseminated, which so it actually reaches people, which is a challenge. I know you, you, um, you said something in one of your podcasts and it might've been with Brianna actually, um, said find your own tool for science communication. You said that really hit home with you. What did you mean by that?
0: Yeah. So maybe that's the podcast host talking. I think podcasts, in particularly it is interesting um, because of how new it relatively is as a as a as a medium for communication and how really rapidly it's just expanded um without podcasting i just can't for me personally so i, I i'm not um uh newsflash, the most outgoing person, although uh you know I try to be and I use this podcast to become more and more that way but it I think it's a the low hanging fruit for anyone now who wants to be able to have a voice out there on the interwebs and uh you know of course you have um newer versions of things, TikTok can be an example as well. I haven't made the the Primate Cast TikTok, Jerry. I don't know if you haven't (laughs) talked Talking Apes TikTok on the horizon. No. (laughs) But but as we know, I mean, it's just becoming so much easier to communicate at mass scale these days. Um, So finding the right tool, I mean, for me, podcasting was just, it was so comfortable right from the beginning where, you know, my friend and I just decided we were going to do this thing. We had the people coming through the door to make it happen. So you know unlike a lot of people we had the platform right from day 1 it's just that we tapped into that platform it, it hadn't been tapped into before um and i think that just creates all these opportunities um but yeah there are so many different ways uh ways to do it and i think the hard the hard part is you know when you think of the different spheres that you can potentially influence the ones that are farthest removed are are, are always the hardest to kind of get into so maybe that's Uh, You need different tools in order to expand your reach beyond, you know, the, the, the simpler kind of better connected ones.
1: As a science communicator, do you feel like you have a responsibility or is there, or do you feel there's a concern um, about what, how you communicate, where you communicate? I mean, because our voices are going to, once this podcast goes up, it's available to the world, um, and now um, I was just looking at some AI tools, and we can instantly make this available in multiple languages. Yeah. Um, so it really is a global communication tool, and so and and I'm starting to think about that as a communicator too. It's like, okay, where are my obligations, and then what are, what what are my concerns in in also what we're presenting and trying to present and, and should be presenting and maybe aren't presenting?
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's a really interesting question. Um, it is something that I've thought about. Uh, of course, in the beginning, you're starting a podcast. It's mostly just getting used to stuff. It's fun. It's novel. Um, and you, you have no idea whether you're going to have an audience, right? Uh, and, you know, frankly speaking, I don't think I'm talking to millions of people right now. Um, or actually I'm on your podcast, so maybe there's, <laughs> <a different>, <laughs> I, <laughs> but certainly not on the private desk. Yeah. So, so, so that wasn't really, uh, much of a thing at the beginning, but what I did feel responsibility for was representing Kyoto University for starters, because, you know, they're sponsoring, um, or had sponsored the, the construction of our, not really construction, but setting up our studio, uh, and providing equipment and a platform to do this. And so I do have a responsibility in that sense, and also as a scientist, um, I, you know, I'm not going to police the guests that I have and make sure that their methods are all perfect. You know, that's not what, what we're about here, but, um, we do tend to talk about scientific issues that, you know, that, that they're, um, uh, that they're excited about, but typically that they they've thought a lot about as well. Um, so w- when I come on here, I, I also feel like I should be a little bit careful with the kind of ramblings that I might come up with to make sure that they're still grounded in the evidence that we've produced as a research group. So yeah, I think as a scientist um, and an educator at Kilt University, those are really important things to me. If it's the broader question about what is, as a scientist again, what is our role in, in communication in broader society? I think that's a really important question as well. And it's something I pose a lot of my students every year is what do you think the role of a scientist should be? Should we be out there communicating ourselves Um, Should we just, you know, leave that to the professional science communicators? There's always going to be gaps. You know, if you look at the way media, the media portrays science, uh, a lot of times it's great. Um, Earlier, I was talking about parasites. Ed Young is a perfect example of someone who's communicated the zombie parasites on TED. He has a wonderful TED talk. And this is another great example of how parasites can influence us without necessarily making us sick, but just completely changing our behavior by, you know, hard, uh, uh, by hijacking our, our hardware and there and our software. But uh, so there are obviously wonderful um, science communicators out there. Um, and a lot of scientists just aren't super great at communicating as well. And so, you know, that's fortunately, I think for most of my guests, I've been really happy that it, the comfort level during the interviews and during the conversations has been pretty good. Um, I can't really think of a specific example where I was really laborious, um, some obviously more comfortable than others. France of all is a great example. He's just such an easy person to talk to. Um, and then Jane, I mean, she just has every, all of her answers already set for having done it like just a jillion times. But, uh, th- there is that, um, I think there is a bit of a danger, uh, in, in the way we communicate potentially because of miscommunication, um, or misperception of, of what is said. And, I noticed in, I think in the last episode you put out, Jerry, um, you had this discussion about, um, social media and animal cruelty. So even that question of defining cruelty can be so polarizing among people. And, you know, the problem with that is once you get put into one box, it's really hard to kind of open that box again to, Re-establish those lines of communication with people who might be tuning you out because they just don't think that having a video with them or a picture of them with their favorite animal is, is any there's nothing wrong with that whereas because in our community we know that the way you portray your interactions with nature has such a huge influence on what people perceive you know one of my former podcast guests steve ross who unfortunately passed away recently um, he showed in the american population that if they're exposed to images of chimpanzees that are wearing human clothing or in human offices or human settings, or even if they're in the jungles of West Africa, but they're wearing a shirt, all of those influence people into thinking that chimpanzees, one, make great pets, and two, are not endangered at all. And so in the US until relatively recently, you had two tiered Legislation for chimpanzees, where the wild chimpanzees were listed as endangered species, but the chimpanzees in the American population were not, and so that allowed probably all kinds of you know mistreatment, and obviously in biomedical testing and things like that, it uh, it, it just seemed to be a way to kind of facilitate these negative or what we would see as undesirable interactions between people and animals. Um, but so the way we portray animals. Um, is, is so important. And, and I think it took us a long time to realize that, you know, I mean, you were mentioning like everything we know about the, the, the Jane Goodall stories from back in the early days were so much about that connection that she had with the apes. And, you know, now we just think of that as you know something we should just avoid at all costs.
1: Right. Yeah. No, that dual messaging is is a tricky one because it, it makes it, I think, really difficult for people to understand where they should come down, and they're just like, "Well, you're telling me this, and you're showing me this. So, what what is it you want out of me?" Um, the the I guess the, the other side of that question, um, getting voices that aren't heard. We work in Cameroon and Gabon uh, quite a bit on some of our field our field projects and with the organization, and there are some an amazing people on the ground there, but they're only going to speak. Cameroonian French, so having them in this format is a challenge. Um, but now with with AI, you know, we can actually look at um, at at having them on, and and it could be you know translated, transcribed, and and actually, I don't even know what you would call this now with AI, where they can actually. I was looking at a, a, a method where they not only. Can it becomes almost like voiceover, but they can actually move the lips to create the words, so that they modify with AI the visual lips, so it doesn't look like it's like this weird voiceover. But Uh um, and and we're and I'm looking at it again as as a communicator is can we use these tools to get these different voices in primatology in in conservation out in front of the public too it's a growing concern of mine, you know, going back to something we were talking about earlier was the cultural difference in in Japan, you know, Franz um, talking, talking about, you know, 20, 30 years ago, the cultural difference in primatology between the West and Japan, but also like, what's, what's that look like from a Cameroonian's perspective or, uh, you know, uh, somebody who works in central Kalimantan, you know, Borneo and, and their perspective on palm oil or primates or disease or, you know, where they grew up in a village where those diseases were common and they dealt with them in a whole, they they dealt with them and looked at them through a whole different lens um, to get that perspective.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, technology now, what can be done is so incredible. So if, if there's a way that can be leveraged, you know, to reach a broader community, that's wonderful. Um, if we look at the, the primate cast specifically, you know, we've tried, it's not perfect, but we've tried to have a pretty diverse set of voices on our program as well, especially in Conservation Voices, run by Cecile. Um, you know, she, she fortunately was able to travel to various different places in India, in Africa, um, in Australia, uh, and, you know, collect these voices and talk to people with really different backgrounds. You know, earlier you asked, what is a primatologist? I think that in some circles, Uh, You can get the impression that the community is not as diverse as it could be. There was recently uh, an essay put out in the the American Journal of Biological Anthropology by, um, I think his name is Thomas Wilson. It was something like a sincerely from a black primatologist. And he was relating his experiences in a white kind of dominated field in the United States um, and the kind of biases that he experienced and, you know, frankly speaking, flat out racism that he experienced. Um, and it's, you know, quite a disheartening story. So on the one hand, sure, we we definitely need to work on that diversity from certain circles. But where I'm sitting in Japan, it, in a way, it's kind of similar because we have Japan itself is a very homogenous population. And Japanese primatologists uh, primatology is obviously dominated by Japanese uh, scientists. And, you know, my graduate advisor, my PhD advisor, Michael Huffman, was one of the pioneers. He's an American who's lived in Japan for 40 years now and came here as an undergrad. And so the kind of experiences he had here, and he was so persistent, eventually ending up as a, a professor at Kyoto, or a faculty member at Kyoto University. But, you know, the experiences he had much earlier on kind of paved the way for people like me to come in in the next generation Uh, and stick around. And so it is diversifying. We have a really rich international community here now at Kyoto University um, of graduate students, of postdocs and and now of faculty. But um, outside of that, you know, primatologists do come from Latin and South America. They do come from Africa. They do come from, you know, um, South and Southeast Asia. And, you know, we've been able to talk to a few of them for our program, but just, you know, when you go to conferences, especially when they're becoming more and more accessible um, you know, the, 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 the hybrid versions are really great for that these days, but also the various grants that societies will have to bring, um, you know, people from range countries into the conferences, it can be really inspiring as well. So you get to kind of experience those different, uh, cultural backgrounds, those different perspectives. Um, so I think that's, that's, you know, always one of the most interesting things about, doing any kind of um, research is being able to connect to people with very different stories from your own. And so those kind of human moments that you have in interactions can be, you know, way more impactful, I think, than the science that you share as well. And so <clears throat> I think there's a lot more that we can still do. And certainly through communication, if there are new, new ways through technology to kind of reach more people or just um, through different collaborations, that's awesome. Uh, but I, I do think that we also have to in some way celebrate the diversity that we have globally as well. And, um, you know, as long as we keep making efforts to, to, to get those people's stories out, um, you know, I think we're going to be doing pretty good for the future as well. Thanks. I, I,
1: I... Especially want to thank you for being on today. It's uh, today, tonight, whatever time zone we're in right now. But I, I, I want to thank both of you. I want to thank the primatologist and I'd like to thank the the primate cast uh, podcast host and creator. Um, it's, How about it's the marine ornithologist as the well? Mar- yes, the marine <laughs> ornithologist. Um, I, I'm really excited that you did that. I, I, I've i been fortunate enough to go to Antarctica on multiple oh, occasions great. Sometimes with uh, the British uh, Antarctic Survey, and then mm-hmm. as as you know, a guide on uh, expedition leader on ships and stuff for for tourists and things in the past. But um, it's an amazing place, and I, I incredible. Th- I think you used uh, the the term extraterrestrial. It's it's like <laughs> it is. I, I always tell people it's like going to another planet. And if it's mm-hmm. the last dime you spend on Earth, it's like it's worth going because it's it's truly. It is like leaving the planet.
0: Yeah, I don't want to offend too many people here, Jerry, but uh, I was able to go with the French Polar Institute. And so they actually brought a chef, really fantastic chef and a baker separately. So we had the most amazing kitchen Um, The most amazing food. And so I I don't imagine you'd have had that on the British uh, Antarctic Survey, but...
1: No, but on (laughs) South Orkney Island, they have the most amazing pub. It looks like they just drop shipped it right out of the UK and brought it right there. (laughs) And they have, you know, everything fresh on tap. So (laughs) it's great. Andrew, this was brilliant. Thank you so much for sharing your time. Um, it, it would, uh, I'd love to chat again sometime in the future. And and thanks also. I really appreciate all that you've done in sharing our podcast with, with your audience. And we will certainly do the same because I think we're both after the same thing as people to understand this planet better and and with more caring and more concern.
0: Absolutely. Thanks so much, Jerry. And absolutely talking apes. I definitely recommend it to everyone who's listening uh, and who's listening to my podcast as well. So um, I'm going to keep being a listener. So thanks for having me on.
1: I want to thank Andrew McIntosh for sharing his experiences as a primatologist and a fellow primate podcast host. You'll find links to the Primate Cast podcast on our website at TalkingApes.org. And of course, it, like our podcast, can be found on your favorite podcast platform. You've been listening to Talking Apes, the podcast that gets to the heart of what's happening with and to apes like us. Our conversations are with folks from across this planet of apes, writers, researchers, conservationists, and scientists all getting us closer to understanding who we are and why, because ensuring the survival of the other four great apes is the only way to ensure our own. I would like to thank our entire Talking Apes team for all of the work that they do to bring this podcast to you. And I would like to thank you, the donors and Patreon members, who make Talking Apes successful through your generous support and your sharing of this podcast. If you appreciate what you hear on Talking Apes, Consider supporting us. Please visit our website at talkingapes.org. Finally, I would like to thank the dedicated folks on the front line of great ape survival. We hope through Talking Apes we're able to shine a light on the incredible, selfless work that you do every day to ensure great apes, primates, and their forest homes survive and thrive into the future. I'm Jerry Ellis. Thanks for listening. And thanks for sharing with your family and friends the Talking Apes podcast.